Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Joining me now for Every Day is Earth Day is James Wolfen, who is the Director of Education at Metro Blooms. Metro Blooms partners with communities to create resilient landscapes and foster clean watersheds, embracing the values of equity and inclusion to solve environmental challenges. How are you today, James? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Karen. Last time we talked, it was for the Garden Show about establishing a pollinator lawn. And today I want to focus more on talking about watersheds because there is a statistics, there's a study that's done that says at least 40% of the Minnesota waters fail to meet the basic health standards, according to the state water quality reports, and including our namesake river, the Minnesota, along with is one of the most polluted. So it's really important, I think, with all so many bodies of water, it says 5,100 bodies of water, including 40% of Minnesota's lakes and streams that fail to meet the basic water quality standards. So I want to know, what are some things we can do to impact it in our own lives? Yeah, I think that what's really uh, inspiring for, for residents in Rancada, really throughout the state of Minnesota, is there's so many best management practices you can implement on your own yard to kind of uh, mitigate these issues. There are really simple things like even just going to Home Depot, buying a, uh, a redirect for your downspout for 2 or $3 can really help to reduce the amount of stormwater runoff that runs off of one's property. And there's also a lot of options in the world of native planting that can reduce the amount of stormwater runoff that runs off of your property and carries all of those harmful nutrients, sediment, all of that gunk, for lack of a better term, to nearby bodies of water. Now, you mentioned buying this adapter for your downspout. So... How do you attach it? Where do you direct the water then? What happens? Yeah, so it's called a downspout redirect, and it attaches directly to, I guess, what you would call the outlet of your current downspout. So many downspouts point to an impervious surface, like perhaps a concrete area, a walking path, some sort of impervious surface. And what we try to do with downspout redirects, we try to encourage residents to direct the water that comes off of their home to places where it can infiltrate into the ground. Rather than having that water run over an impervious surface, it infiltrates into the ground, it infiltrates into a native planting. All of the, the gunk, all of the nutrients, anything that would otherwise run off the property gets captured and infiltrated into the soil. I have noticed as I've been driving, some people take their sump pump hoses. You know, we have problems with some wet basements sometimes, so we have sump pumps. And people have directed that and it goes right into the street. In fact, it goes right out over the curb into the street. And I'm thinking that's probably not the best way to use your water from your sump pump coming out either. Definitely not. I would say that when thinking about how to dispose of water, you know, I'm not going to try and be the person who dictates exactly how you use it. But if you can try and keep it away from, keep it out of the watershed, keep it off the streets and keep it from getting into the storm drains, keep it away from areas where water from your sump pump from your basement is going to get into nearby bodies of water that we use for recreation and drinking water. That's definitely something that you want to avoid. Now let's talk a little bit about how does the water from your own yard pollute the lakes? Because, I mean, we're far away from the lakes, so explain a little how that happens. So we're all a part of a watershed, and we kind of have this watershed mentality that goes with it, where during a rain event, rain moves through our roofs, through our downspouts, 
travels across our lawn and eventually reaches impervious surfaces like streets, roads, sidewalks, etc., and it eventually makes its way to a storm drain. Once in the storm drain, that water flows into a nearby body of water. I know for me, I live in the uh, Bassett Creek watershed, so my, my water flows through that pathway. Folks out in Mankato know, depending on what watershed you live in, when water hits your roof and follows that same journey, it'll flow into the water associated with whatever, into, excuse me, the body of water associated with whatever watershed you live in. And as the water moves across that journey, it's picking up all sorts of contaminants. Uh, one of the main contaminants that we worry about, for example, is phosphorus. Phosphorus is included in lots of fertilizers. It's found in our soil. And when phosphorus enters a body of water, it can create uh, algal blooms, which, re- which results in eutrophication. Eutrophication is when algal blooms kind of um, use up a lot of the oxygen that's normally in the water. If you ever go by a body of water that's kind of got that uh, greenish color to it, that murky green color, some algal growth, or even just pick up the scent of it, it's due to a lack of oxygen, which really makes the body of water much less palatable for recreation, much less you know, it's it's a uh, it's contaminated. So what you want to do is we really want to just reduce the amount of contaminants that enter a body of water. Another one that we worry quite a bit about, especially here in Minnesota, is uh, road salt. So here in Minnesota, of course, the winters are grueling to say the least, and to make sure that we can still uh, travel safely, we sometimes need to apply at least some salt to the roads to keep them usable. Unfortunately, a lot of that salt. Can, can eventually enter our nearby bodies of water, and salt is a major contaminant. I believe the uh, little factoid that we use quite a bit is that one teaspoon of salt can, can permanently contaminate five gallons of water. Wow. And when we think about how much salt gets used in Minnesota on a, on, a per, on, a, on a regular basis, that really does tend to add up. So there's all sorts of contaminants that enter our, body, the, our nearby bodies of water in whatever watershed you live in. What's really uh, exciting for a resident is that there are steps you can take to kind of reduce the stormwater runoff on your own property and really help yourself, your community, and your local water quality. Many people, many entities apply salt, but we're not always thinking about how much salt we're applying and what the appropriate amount is and what alternatives like sand and grit are. So there's definitely a strong effort being made on a statewide scale to think about how much salt we use, what um, alternatives there are to salt, and kind of the thing about how we could be better stewards of our land in terms of our use of salt and keeping it out of our nearby bodies of water. What are some alternatives as we can use in our own yards? Because I do see a lot of people using salt to clear their sidewalks or driveways, etc. Some alternatives are rather than melting away the ice, what you can try to do is you can um, do something that's going to get you better traction. So using some sand or some grit is a really good option to kind of help you get better traction when walking across the snow or ice. So what do you think the biggest contributor is to the pollutants that are going into the waterways? I mean, you've talked about salt, we've talked about yard, whether it's fertilizer or whatever. Which of those is is the biggest problem? Gosh, it's really hard for me to, you know, make that hard determination as to what is the sole biggest problem. I think we just have to, it's a problem that we know about and we can attack it from multiple different angles. And just incorporating whatever best management practices you can to reduce it where salt is definitely a major issue. Stormwater runoff and all the contaminants that get carried along with it is a major issue. Phosphorus is probably the one that I would, if I was being forced to select, the one that I would select, just because of its association with eutrophication and algal blooms. They really are all extremely important. And, and, and what's good for us is there's something we can do about it to change that. Recently, the 
Minnesota House of Environment and Natural Resources Committee introduced a bill that would require all cities to permit native landscapes. And a lot of that goes back to here some discussion in Mankato. You may be familiar with an um, older gentleman who had a native lawn in North Mankato, and he was told that he had to clean it up. And now there's the chair of the Minnesota House Environment and Natural Resources Committee, Representative Rick Hansen, introduced this bill that would require all cities to permit this, these native landscapes. What are your thoughts on that? How can that help with the water quality and other issues in the environment? For me personally, it is a, uh, a legislative effort that I am certainly very supportive of. I know that through my own work, we work with lots of residents that have this desire to install native plantings, native grasses, all sorts of native vegetation that grows taller than what's typically permitted in, in lawns. Some cities, some municipalities only allow plants in the lawn area to be six inches or lower, and so many of our native plants and perennial wildflowers grow significantly taller than that. I think this really just gives Minnesotans the opportunity to make their own decisions when it comes to how they want to manage their landscapes. I think it's important to, to realize that you can have a landscape that uses plants that are not that traditional conventional turf grass, and it can still be beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. I think lots of folks get afraid of that when they hear that those restrictions might leave, that folks won't have to have that pristine lawn, that it means that lawns could be unsightly and it could affect property values. But I think people really just have to open their mind as to what does a beautiful lawn and yard look like? And for me, when you're bringing back native plants, when you're bringing back perennial wildflowers and all of the color and wildlife that comes along with it, to me, that is significantly more desirable. So this really just gives Minnesotans greater access to gardening and making decisions about their own landscapes. I read an article that said we should all blame George Washington, the first president who maintained a lawn at Mount Vernon, uh, because he copied the styles from the English manor houses and castles. So a lot of people got that vision from his very, very manicured lawns. And of course, the love of turf grass is has grown since. And so maybe it's time to go back to realizing that that is not the best for the environment. For as much grief as turf gets, it is important to recognize, to recognize its place. It's a very walkable surface. It's to maintain for the most part. It's good for recreation. And it's also, you know, very cost effective. Where I think it's important to recognize that there are families that want to play in their yard and turf is suitable that for that. There are families that maybe don't have the resources, whether it be time or money, to convert their entire lawn area into native plantings. But I think even within the realm of turf, it's, a re- it's really important to think critically about the decisions you make in your lawn. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Kentucky bluegrass is so much less sustainable than other turf grass species options that exist. Well, especially um, given the turf- drought we had this summer, I think a lot of folks really saw that with the because since it's not a native plant and has shallow roots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I like to tell folks is, you know, when you have the resources to replace your turf grass lawns with something that's more sustainable and more ecological friendly, like a rain garden or a native planting or incorporating more trees and shrubs into your landscapes, but you should absolutely do that or at least consider it. But even in areas where you feel like you do need turf because you want to play or because you don't have enough time and money to allocate towards maintaining a native planting, then I think it really is still to think critically about what species of turf you're using. Where, for example, fine fescue, it requires one-sixth of the fertilizers compared to Kentucky bluegrass, you can mow it far less frequently. There are varieties of fine fescue where you only have to mow two to three times per year. 
and it has much greater drought tolerance. This year, I went on tons and tons of turf grass consultations, and there was such incredible species-to-species variation in response to the drought. Where fine fescue, you can go three, maybe even four weeks without watering it, and it's still in good health, whereas Kentucky bluegrass needs to be watered far more frequently by comparison. So I think, you know, everyone has to think critically about how they function within their lawn, how they use their lawn, the amount of resources they have to dedicate to their yard area, and just try and make the most informed decision possible. James, let's say you already have your turf grass. It's mostly Kentucky bluegrass. Could you retrofit, so to speak, your yard by maybe somehow adding some fine fescue seed? Or in my case, I've been adding clover seed to my lawn. Is that something you can sort of retrofit? Yeah, absolutely. Both are options. And we do this through a process called overseeding. So when you overseed, what you want to try and do is mow your lawn area as low as possible. I almost never recommend raking away the clippings, but this is the one instance where I would recommend raking away the clippings. And the reason for that, both the mow and the raking away of clippings, is because you want to expose as much soil as contact for when you lay your seed down. So when you do this overseeding, you want to lay whatever your desired uh, uh, is throughout the lawn area. That could be clover, that could be a bee lawn mix, that could be even just a more sustainable turf grass species like the fine fescue, like you said. And in terms of actually having, and especially for the fine fescue now, in terms of having it actually overtake or at least compete with the bluegrass, once you see evidence of establishment, it's going to sound a little counterintuitive. What you want to do is you actually want to kind of neglect the lawn in a sense. Hmm. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're creating an environment where the fine fescue can flourish, but the Kentucky bluegrass will have unfavorable conditions. If the Kentucky bluegrass needs constant watering and fertilizer applications, and you take those things out of the environment, then it creates a situation where the fine fescue is going to do really well, the Kentucky bluegrass is going to struggle, and that fine fescue will be able to uh, take up more real estate over time. I mean, don't you have to keep the fine fescue seeds moist until they get established? How long do you have them established? Correct, correct. You only start to do this kind of a neglecting management strategy after you have establishment. Um, generally, you should start to see germination and establishment, especially for fine fescue, within three weeks. My recommendation would be is to kind of get to know the differences in appearance of your fine fescue as compared to your Kentucky bluegrass. And it's really easy to tell apart. As the name would indicate, the fine fescue leaf blades are super, super thin, so they're pretty easy to tell apart. On the water quality front, a benefit of this is they require so much less water to be applied as compared to the Kentucky bluegrass. So, so much more sustainable, so much better for reducing stormwater runoff. And, you know, in a drought year like this year, the, the value of a fine fescue is never more apparent. The, you can buy seed mixes, but I don't know that fine fescue is always included in a seed mix. So, is fine fescue seed out there? Because I guess I haven't seen it. Where can I get it? So, the University of Minnesota's Turfgrass Science website has a very thorough listing of where you can find seed. What, what you want to look for are two different types of mixes. So there's two different types of grass mixes that often carry fine fescue seed. It's either shade-tolerant mixes or low-mow mixes. And that's due to the kind of biological nature of the fine fescue. It does really well within shaded areas, and it's a very slow-growing species, of which are traits that are desirable to, to residents. Mm-hmm. So you want to look out for those and then check the back of the bag to see what species 
policies are included. So that's something we can do gradually, because I've been just gradually putting in little clover seeds in my yard, and, and they're starting to take over. And when other people had brown, I still had green, and it was nice and soft. I guess it's a matter of adjusting to that new look. Definitely. And I think it's just, you know, another tool to have in your basket. It's another tool to have available to you when you think about how you want to manage your yard. Where, of course, you know, the best thing that you can do to reduce stormwater runoff is install a rain garden. But that's only going to take up maybe a few hundred square feet if you're really aggressive. But that leaves so much of your landscape left for making other potential decisions. So I like to think that, you know, choosing a more sustainable turf grass species or installing a bee lawn are really nice ways to supplement the landscape when trying to manage for sustainability, water quality, and pollinator conservation. When you say rain garden, I always think you have to have like a little low spot. Is that the case? So the only thing that differentiates a rain garden from a traditional native plant garden is that you're taking that time to excavate some soil, you know, dig out a little bit of an area to capture additional stormwater runoff. What might surprise some folks is that they're not really too deep. A typical rain garden that we install at Metro Blooms is somewhere between four and six inches in depth. It varies based on the type of soil that's present. If you have a sandy soil that drains really fast, go about six inches deep. If you're dealing with clay soils that don't drain quite as fast, then you keep it a little bit higher, just four inches. But even excavating a small amount of soil and installing native plants, you're going to catch literally thousands of gallons of stormwater runoff per year in that planted area. Something that our landscape design leads always tell us is that if you've got standing water in a rain garden for more than 48 hours, it's no longer a rain garden. It is a mosquito uh, <laughs> puddle. <laughs> now you've got a mosquito nesting area, which is counterproductive. So we really try to make sure and recommend that all of our rain gardens are fully drained in at least in no more than 24 hours. I believe state guidelines will tell you that 48 hours is the absolute max, but we always try to be conservative and go for a 24-hour drain time. What are some of the common landscaping practices that work against sustainability? I would say uh, perhaps the resident that's obsessed with keeping lawn prim and perfect and at a very low height. If you're out there mowing all of the time, if you're out there mowing, you know, twice a week or very frequently, you're expending a lot of fossil fuels. If you're irrigating your lawn very frequently, water is absolutely a natural resource that we need to conserve to the best of our abilities. I would say that when I was at the University of Minnesota for my graduate work and I was in the turf grass science lab, my advisor there, Dr. Eric Watkins, a very cool, calm, and collected kind of guy. But if you really wanted to see him blow a fuse, when <laughs> residents anywhere really was, were running their irrigation systems while it was actively raining, yeah. that's about as unsustainable a measure as you can take. So just trying to be really intentional in how you manage your lawn thinking critically about when you run your irrigation systems, how frequently you irrigate. And there's really a lot more uh, technology now to help you with these decisions. Newer irrigation systems often have soil moisture readers on them that where they are only watering when soil actually needs to be watered. Some of them can even connect to your Wi-Fi. And if, it, and if there's rain in the forecast, it'll actually shut down the system because it knows the rain is going to do the work for you. So, you know, just trying to make sure that you make the best management decisions possible. But certainly um, inputs, applications like fertilizer, applications like constant watering and constant mowing, those are kind of the enemy of sustainability within a yard and lawn. I know you often do classes and workshops and things. Are there any coming up that people can take advantage of? Yeah, absolutely. So something that's very exciting for, for us is a statewide program called Lawns for Legumes. It was just kind of a re-upped this time for about 
$2 million, and with that comes more educational workshops. And uh, Metro Blooms, we also do some B-Lawn workshops where we teach folks about how they can transition their, you know, conventional, in my opinion, boring turf grass lawn mm-hmm. into a pollinator-friendly, sustainable B-Lawn. All of our workshops are listed on the Bluesome website. These Lawns to Legumes uh, webinars are free to attend, and the B-Lawn workshop, it does have a fee associated with it, but I am I can assure you that it's going to save you time and money in the long run if you attend. Bluethumb.org. Bluethumb.org, and that's where you can find more information on the free webinars and also other ones you may be interested in. We definitely encourage everyone to you know, think critically about how they manage their own landscapes. If you need help with those first steps, I definitely recommend attending one of those Lawn Flagging's webinars. They're all about empowering Minnesotans to make these decisions and kind of give them that head start into, you know, how do I make these landscape changes a reality on my own property? Do you know how much impact they have had so far? How many people have installed pollinator, native gardens, etc.? So, yeah, we're definitely very excited about the results we've seen so far through the Lawn Flagging's program. To date, folks that have either received grant funding or that have reported that they were inspired by the program have installed over 800,000 square feet of native pollinator-friendly plantings, and on top of that, an additional 1,000-plus pollinator-friendly trees and shrubs. Something that I really get excited about is just the extent to which Minnesotans are quite literally putting their money where their mouth is. So to date, uh, grantees through this program have spent uh, almost $250,000 in total. Only 86000 of that has come from state funds, and more than $150,000 from that has come from residents spending their own money on these projects to show their own literal investment in their property in Minnesota landscapes. So it's really exciting that we're seeing residents spend their own money as compared to state funds at about a two-to-one rate. And also so many of our partners in the green infrastructure world have told us that this has been having a tremendous impact on their small local businesses. So we're seeing tons of projects installed. I believe it's around 350, almost 350 projects installed so far from grant funding alone. There's also been so much work done by residents who have just been inspired by the program. We just opened up for phase two. So phase one was this pilot program that I just, the numbers I shared with you were related to that pilot program. Phase two, we started accepting applications uh, the first day of the state fair, actually September 25th. And that's going to go through probably February or so. Okay, so it's open for people to apply for funds that go to create these native and pollinator lawns. That's that's great to know. How do they do that? If you go to the Blue Thumb website, very first page right there will give you the instructions on how to apply for a lawn selecting grant. So if you just go to the Blue Thumb homepage at bluethumb.org, it will be very straightforward as to how to apply. The idea is that we collect applications through the winter and do education concurrently such that folks can receive their funding and the education that goes along with it in time to complete some spring projects. Wonderful. Well, I I appreciate your time. James Wolfen with Metro Blooms Organization talking about how we can all better our environment in our own backyard. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me, Karen. Everyday is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Everyday is Earth Day is also supported by members of the executive board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.